guys, this is Pastor Justin Bowers, and you are listening to the New Community Podcast. Uh, We're thrilled that you're listening today, and we hope that this is a great experience for you. I wanted to let you know that you can support the work of New Community and all that God is doing down here in West Virginia by going to New Community WV and then clicking on the Give tab. Uh, We would love to have your support, and we would be excited that you would journey with us in all that God has called us to, to be a people finding and following Jesus beyond Sundays. Enjoy the podcast. Um, We are going to continue into our series, but I did get a text message this week. I was so excited. So if you haven't been here for this series yet, what we've opened up is a line where you can text the word questions to this number, 24587, and then once you get the response and get into that list, you can send any question you want. So you are welcome to interact with this sermon, with this teaching as it's happening. Feel free to do that. So the question from last week we talked about, and you can go uh, check out the podcast, but the question we talked about was how do we share our faith in a world that seems resistant to conversion? And, and one of the questions that came in, and I thought it was a great follow-up question, the question was how can I attract marginalized people to a church that views them as less than? And that's an incredible question. That, that is an incredible question. I, I am assuming the heart of that question is, relate, is related to issues, is related to things that we could discuss as issues. Um, but the reality is we all know people who struggle to walk in a church because they have been hurt by a church. Amen? Like, we know that. And, and so I looked up just, just as a kind of a five-minute response. There were a couple things I wanted to share in response to this question. If you define a marginalized person or what the word marginalized means— The definition is a person or group treated as peripheral or insignificant. So can we just name the fact that the gospel says no one is insignificant? Can we just identify that? C.S. Lewis uh, said that we we should recognize the God-given value of all people. He said it this way, and a little bit of a long quote, but it's worth it. It's so good because it's C.S. Lewis. He says, it may be possible for each to think too much of his own potential glory. We may think too much of ourselves. It's hardly possible for him to think too often or too deeply about that of his neighbor. He says, the, lo- the load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it, and the backs of the proud will be broken. And, and underline, highlight, note, whatever you got to do. There are no ordinary people. That's what C.S. Lewis says. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal, but it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. And our charity must be real and costly love with deep feeling for the sins in spite of which we love the sinner. And he goes on and says, no mere tolerance or indulgence which parodies love as flippancy parodies merriment. Next to the blessed sacrament of communion itself, your neighbor is the holiest object present to your senses. That is so good. That is so good. And I would say this, the answer to the question, how do we reach people who are marginalized to a church that views them as less than, is I would say, help us create a church that doesn't view anyone as less than. Become a part of new community in a way that says we will go beyond Sundays to love the people who have been marginalized and hurt by the churches. I say a lot of times this is a recovery group for those who have been in church for too long. And I'm probably the chief sinner. <laughs> like, so we get that. Okay, so that's, that's kind of seven, seven minutes, five minutes. We'll, we'll, we'll keep rolling if you have other questions. Um, if you have a Bible, today I want you to go to Luke 10. And the question I'm going to tell you up front, 
because um, some of you are going to wish you didn't come today. I just, I just know that. The question is, what's with the mess of politics and religion? If you wish you weren't here, you're going to have to endure it. It's awkward for you to leave at this point. Um, but I want to start, and I've done this before. I want to start with a bit of a survey, but it's always fun to get a feel for the room. How many of you, like, you hate talking about politics? Just be bold. Be Okay, so today you're going to probably not have much fun. Um, and, and you feel like it just shouldn't be done, like preachers should just leave it alone. Anybody, you can keep your hand up for that. I, I get it. You can, you, some of you are shy. I get it. How many of you, though, a little like me, love this stuff? Like you came because you looked at the schedule, and I didn't publish the schedule again this week because I knew some of you would not come. Um, and, and how many of you, just let's be honest, survey the room. How many of you, if you were, if you were honest, you would have skipped church today if you'd known this is what we were going to talk about? Yes, my sister is agreeing with that. <laughs> So right off the bat, here's what we see, here's what we have. We have a well-divided room. Some of you didn't participate in any of that. That's like election. I get that too. So let me tell you a couple stories. A while ago, after a service that we held, I stood in the back of the room having someone ask me with incredible passion and with tears in their eyes, why don't you speak more clearly about issues of justice and how they relate politically? That's what someone asked me. We stood and we talked about that. And they told me, they said, you're so close to echoing the things that I believe, but you're just not going far enough at times. And that's the conversation. It was a, a, a great conversation. It wasn't critical. It was a great conversation. Then, let me tell you the other side of this. Just a few weeks later, I spoke with someone else who informed me that they had talked to someone who left our church because they believed I communicated that if you voted for a certain candidate, you can guess which candidate, you couldn't be a Christian. All right, that's, that's kind of what had happened. Now, let me tell you this. These two examples were very evidently different and on different ends of the spectrum. They do not vote the same. I don't know that, but I guarantee it. Does that make sense to you? And apparently, I had caused offense across the entire political spectrum. So kudos to me. This may be why, this may be the reason why, clear back, listen, clear back in 1840, Thomas Halliburton made the statement that so many of you cling to even today. He said this, never discuss religion or politics with those who hold opinions opposite to yours. They are subjects that heat in handling. They get hotter until they burn your fingers. <laughs> That's great. That's a great quote. It's true. And that may resonate with you, especially those of you who just wish that we would bypass this question, or at least that you'd have known so you could skip this service. You may feel like these topics are just too heated, too divisive. It isn't doing us any good to deal with them. Let me just tell you, I have the mic. So I think, though, I will say my own mom feels that way, and she's here. So we're going to be okay today. But here's the thing that I think is so important to frame today, and it's important because in, in many ways, you already know what I'm about to tell you. I want you to hear this, but I think you already know it. See, here's the thing. Even if, listen, even if we bypass the political conversations, even if I, as your pastor, said we're not going to go there, and I said what so many of you wish I'd say, let's just preach the gospel, leave politics out of it, even if that was the case, even if we said those things and tried to avoid all political discussions and simply keep moving, if we did that, here's the truth that you already know, okay? You may not like this, but this is the truth. To say that we're not political is to take a political stance. That's true. That's a true statement. That's my mother-in-law. She, she feels the other way. We're good to go, right? <laughs> but to say that we're not political is to take a political stance. I know some of you don't like that statement. Some of you want to say, I'm not political. But it's true because, listen, if we say we're not political, what we're actually doing is what the author and pastor Tim Keller says is essentially casting a vote for the social status quo, okay? 
If that's our approach. So, so here's the thing we know. You know this, I know this. Politics and politics mixed with religion are broken. Can everybody amen that? Okay, so we all feel that. You don't agree with each other on the issues, but we all agree. It always has been. Most of us resonate with that. But if our response is simply to stay out of politics, we are bypassing the importance of, listen, the calling of God and his people to speak into the culture around us with the imagination that the gospel gives for good news. We're missing that. So let me give you an example of this so so that you don't think I'm off my rocker. In the early 19th century, There were churches that were simply, they were not opposed, they were not for, but they were refusing to speak out against slavery because they would be criticized for being too political. And in that action, in their silence, they were actually supporting, I believe, the sin of slavery by doing so, by staying quiet. So let me say again, to say we're not political is to take a political stance. Now I know, I'm like three minutes in, I'm already pushing some of your buttons. I get it. And you are probably forming opinions already of where I stand politically and why you don't like my views or whatever. But here's what I'm asking. Literally, I'm asking you to do this right now. Everybody just literally do this. Take a deep breath in and let it out. And then I want you to look at your neighbor and say, today's going to be okay. Some of you are like, this is more fellowship than I've had with my wife in months. And I want you to look at them and say, we're going to be okay. Well done. Some of you don't believe it. I can hear like, ah. Here's what I want to do. I want to look at a story Jesus told, and I want to draw what I believe are some implications for the way our moral lives, our civil lives, and our political lives are affected in this story. What this is really related to is our ethics as people of faith. So you don't have to agree with me, but you do need to wrestle with it. You do need to wrestle with this. Here's the truth. I'm going to tell you a story of Jesus because the truth of Scripture is this. I could probably argue with you and most likely show you Scripture that would persuade you probably not persuade you because not too many people change their minds today, but I could at least cause you some dissonance about your own political view based on scriptures. The truth is in the Bible, we don't see the entirety of scripture line up to tell us whether we should politically be red or blue because, and praise God for this, God's word will never be co-opted to fit our agenda. That's never going to happen. So you can find scriptures that sound very Republican, and some of you do because you know, right? God is always right. And if God is always right, then Jesus is always right, and he's right, and so I must be right, and therefore we should be right. Like, we could go that. And and by the way, Jesus called Matthew to follow him, and Matthew was a text collector, and the other word for text collector was publican, which is practically Republican. So Jesus had Republicans following him. That's kind of, that's, that's where our mind goes. By the way, that's a terrible interpretation of scripture. And the Democrats are thinking, they're sitting in the room going, are you kidding me? You can, you, because you can also find very democratic sounding scripture. Like Jesus was a healthcare dispensing machine and he never charged anybody, right? He never charged anybody. And he always was getting on to rich people about their richness, right? Rich people, come on, you got to wake up. And he was feeding everyone, And the libertarians are sitting here going, are you nuts? The most popular scripture of all time is John 3.16. But the second most popular scripture is you will know the truth and the truth shall set you free and liberty and freedom. And this is so bad, right? This is such bad interpretation of scripture. I don't want to call out 
specific issues and where we should be. I will hit a few things that I think matter, but I want to look at a story Jesus told about the nature of love and of ethics and of human relationships because really politics are formed from human relationships, good and bad. This is a story, but it's a story that deals with every part of our human existence. So we'll read it. I'm going to interpret a little bit of what we, what we see, what we hear as we go, and then I want to draw some conclusions for us about the nature of faith and politics. So Luke 10, here's what the story tells us. Verse 25 is where we will be. It says, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Isn't it great that they had conversations where people were being tested and the conversation didn't matter just like we do? That's called Facebook. I'm testing you to see how you respond, not really caring about you. But he stood up to test Jesus and he said, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus responds, what is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. So let's, let's start this whole conversation by maybe we could say this. Maybe we could just name this up front. I think we know this. I think we get distracted from this. But we could say this first, eternal life is always more important than national life. Our eternal life, the kingdom of God, who God is in our lives, deserves. Now now listen, this is 4th of July week, and I'm going to celebrate our country. We're going to talk about that. We're gonna, this is a beautiful country, but I will say to you, the kingdom of God deserves a higher allegiance than your country. Some of you struggle to even hear those words. But there is a reality that that's what it is. I I love this country, but the kingdom of God, the values of the kingdom of God also make me very deeply frustrated with my country at times. I love this country. I I remember uh, it it was the 10-year anniversary of 9-11 when they were holding all these memorial services and they were broadcasting this beautiful stuff. And I was watching the leaders of our country from every side of the aisle, right? Because you know there's not just two sides. We'll, We'll talk about that too. But every side of the aisle come together and reflect and celebrate and honor what had taken place on 9-11. And I thought, today, I'm really proud to be an American. I'm really proud of what that means and what that's all about. But you know what happened the next day? Those same leaders were back out on a campaign trail cutting each other down and slamming each other and disintegrating any unity that might have been formed. And I thought, today, I'm not so proud to be an American. And I think there's a reality that we have to name that, that eternal life is always more important. So can I just say this to you? If your national life supersedes your pursuit of eternal life, we need to be asking how we're spending our time. We need to be asking, and this is just super practical, but are we meditating on the word of God as much as we're inhaling political news media? Which matters more to us? Where are we consumed? We've, we've got to own some of this stuff. How, how this plays out in the church is, and this is, this is hard to say. Some of you are, are going to struggle when I say this, but I just feel like today's a, I want to say this, the prophets of the scripture needed to confront some things. Today's a little bit prophetic in the sense that I think we need to confront some things. I, I remember walking into a, a worship service. It was not here. It was not a part of this church. But I walked into a worship service at a massive church, and I struggled for months as I was leading worship there and seeing people kind of sort of respond to God. It, it, you guys have a little bit of this. I call it white American church where it's like the song says clap your hands, and you're like, well, okay, I'll clap for that line. And then we're done. Like we got some of that. Okay, We need a little bit more soul in our worship. 
But I remember seeing that in this culture of worship, and then we, we did a patriotic song of worship, which I have no issue with, but I watched the church come alive. And I thought, man, are we, are we celebrating national life more than eternal life? Are we missing some of this? See, we have to understand, we have to name some of this stuff. This man comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Look at verse 29. He names these commands, and Jesus says, go do that, and you'll be fine. And the man wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? How many political conversations do you have where you, maybe not you, maybe you're better than this. I'm, I'm not, but maybe you are. But the other person you're talking to, you know that all they want is to be proven right. I don't want to hear your side. I want you to know my side is correct. See, this guy hears Jesus say, well, do this and you will have that eternal life. And it says he wanted to justify himself. His question here is, who is my neighbor? It's a question of who is my neighbor, not why should I love my neighbor? The question is, as so many are asking in our civil life, in our moral life, who deserves my love? Who deserves my approval? Who deserves my help? Who should I care about? Who should I love? Look what Jesus says in verse 30. In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes. They beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, we're going to tell the whole story, but I want you to pause here because this story, things we never get out of the Good Samaritan story is this. One, we don't know who this man is who's beaten and left for dead. We're not told who he is. We're not told whether he's Republican or Democrat. In this day, it would have been whether he's a Herod supporter or a supporter of Rome or whether he's wanting to overthrow Rome or he's Jew. We don't know who this man is. We don't know how he ended up there, but we know all that we know is that he ended up in a position of vulnerability where he's almost dead. And on this road, you, you got to understand this too, this road between Jerusalem and Jericho, if you study this, this was actually called the Bloody Pass. There was actually a better way to go, an easier way to go, but it was, it was a longer way. And so they would take the bloody pass. It was about 15 to 20 minute journey. And you went from 2,100 feet above sea level to about 845 feet above sea level. It was this massive descent among rocky territory. And it was a place that Martin Luther King Jr., after he visited, said, it's a perfect place for thieves to come out and ambush. It's a dangerous place. And this is where this man is. Verse 31, a priest happened to be going down the same road as was a Jewish priest. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now, there are so many questions that arise for us from the priest and the Levite. We're, they, they may have been asking, are the thieves still close? Are we in danger? Is our sake endangered here? Is this man faking it? Could this man be pretending he's in need and he might attack us? And the question, if I stop, what will happen to me? What will take place in me? See, I want you to understand the priest. The priest in the Jewish world was elite. He was wealthy. <laughs> he wasn't a pastor, right? That He was elite and wealthy, and he spent a couple of weeks at a time serving at the temple in Jerusalem, and now his service was over, and he could return home. So he had this moral dilemma on the journey home from Jerusalem because there were cultural markers. There were social markers of distinction. If he was Jewish, if, if the man who was half dead was Jewish, the priest was legally, by listen, by the law of Moses, obligated to help. If he didn't help a Jewish brother, he would be sinning. However, if this man wasn't Jewish, 
then he would be committing, uh, he would be taking uncleanness into his life. If this man was dead, then he would be unclean. And now his journey home would be interrupted because, watch this, the priest would have to return to Jerusalem and be cleansed at the ritual purification at the temple. So there's all these implications of what happens. And the Levite comes along. You know who the Levite was? The Levite was the priest's assistant. And so the Levite had to follow expectations and couldn't upstage his boss. See, I want you to understand, this is the second thing I want us to notice from this story, and it's been this way for eons. Our culture, and often, I believe, us, are driven by a mindset that disadvantages others. See, we are so often, as human beings, as human societies, we are being driven by a mentality, by a mindset that puts others into a disadvantageous place. We are capitalizing on the vulnerability of others. Think about this. You live in West Virginia, right? You live in a place where the culture has been stigmatized as white trash. It's been stereotyped. It's been given this identity that in many ways has served to, for the rest of the world, define us. And we fight against that. And we feel that. Maybe we fight, we want to wrestle against that. But the same things happen with people of other races, people of other ethnicities, people that are immigrating. We see all this. And I'm not naming, listen, if you're feeling already that reaction politically, well, here here we go. I'm not naming that. All I'm saying is the human value by the culture that drives the world is often disadvantaged. It's often people because of sin and brokenness taking advantage of other people. And that's exactly what's going on in this story. Look at verse 33. But a Samaritan, Jesus said, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. Now, you, you got to get this. The Samaritan is the explosive epicenter of this story. He is. To the Jewish people, he's considered a half-breed, and Jesus just turned him into a hero. This is a racially charged story. The Samaritans were the mix of the Jewish people who had intermingled with a foreign Gentile people, and they were seen as sinful simply by existing, and Jesus just turned him into a hero. The hero of this story for a Jewish person should have been a Jewish person. They would have been okay if the priest passed by. They would have been okay if the Levite passed by, but you've got to make someone Jewish coming into the story to rescue because God loves the Jewish people, and Jesus says the people that you hate are the ones who will be the hero. See, I want you to grab this. God has never desired, God has never wanted a monocultural people, a one culture people. Abraham was chosen. God said that your people will be the light of the world. They'll be the blessing. They'll be blessed to be a blessing. And they'll be a blessing to all the nations, to all the nations. It's always been a diversity of perspective, of experience, of ethnicity, of worldview that makes us as humans Richer. See, there's so much. I, I said this this week. There's so much transformation available to us. We, you want to be transformed. The way to be transformed in your heart, in your life, is to engage people who don't share the same perspective as you, don't share the same values as you, don't share the same experience as you, don't share the same culture as you, because we get richer in that. Because these are no mere mortals, as C.S. Lewis would say. But the heart of this story is not about people distinction. It's actually about the outpouring of love for a neighbor who very well might 
kill us. Look at verse 34. He went to him, he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and he took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, their their money, and he gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three, here's what Jesus asks, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robber? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. I want you to get this. The greatest political question, this is, this is the thing I want to point out. The greatest political question we could ask is not who, but how. See, this, this man approaches Jesus and says, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And he spells it out. And Jesus says, go do that. And, and the man says, okay, well, who? Who is my neighbor? Who do I have to love? Who do I have to agree with? Wouldn't it be nice if Jesus told us, here's your party platform. Here's your political agenda. Here's the things you should go after that I care about. If we knew the who, we might be okay. But the question that Jesus reflects, he doesn't ever answer the question for the man. He doesn't say, well, listen, idiot. The Samaritan's the neighbor. But at the very end, he reframes the man's question and he says, how did he reflect what it meant to be a neighbor? See, the neighbor asked, how can I help? See, I I want you to hold this tightly. The gospel call to love God and to love our neighbor doesn't ever change based on our political perspective. That doesn't ever change. I don't care where you come from. I don't care what your opinion is. The gospel call supersedes your political issues. The greatest commandment of loving God and loving others should affect deeply every political opinion that we hold. It is absolutely countercultural. So here's what we have to ask. What do we do with this? You're not answering any question, Justin. You're just making it more complex. Look at your neighbor and say, we're still going to be okay. Amen. We're going to be okay. I want to give you a couple things. These are not 10 commandments, right? These are like four lesser commandments that I made up, so you can take them or leave them. That's really how today is going to go as we start to wind down. But I want to say this before we go there. Every single political party sits in this room every Sunday morning, and we do okay. Every perspective sits here. The conversation is rich. But here's what I know. Arrogance is sinful, and social media is hurtful. And we need to name that. We are told, listen, we are told biblically, the one thing that God says politically, one of the things that God says politically, pray for your leaders. Do you do that? You don't have to answer. Do you, yes, I pray against my leaders. I didn't say against them. Do you pray for them? Do we have this sense of what all this means. See, here's, here's the first lesser command that I made up and you can throw out with the bathwater if you want. I, that's how this topic should be. Don't try to simplify us as a church with a political label. Please don't ever do that. And, and maybe we could put in parentheses, maybe this could be the challenge for you today. So don't try to simplify us and then in parentheses and shockingly even yourself with a simple political label. Because it's so much deeper than that. They're conservative, liberal, moderate, traditional, progressive. I am and I believe we are all of those things. There are issues where I am very conservative and I'm not naming the media issues. 
There are issues where I am very progressive. There are issues where I am super traditional. Once a month, we practice something that happened 2,000 years ago. That's pretty darn traditional. We gotta be okay with the complexity. And so the danger, I think, the reason that politics and faith get so mixed up is we start to align our mindset with just one party because most political positions, here's what I know, are not issues of biblical command. The majority of political positions are not biblical command issues, but rather they're about practical wisdom. They're about practical wisdom. So don't try to just simplify us as a church or even yourself with the political label. Here's the second lesser command that you can throw out today if you don't like it. Don't let the call to love people ever become simply issues. Do not miss this. This harkens back to the question that was texted in this week. Don't let the call to love people ever become about your stance or about an issue. See, there are political issues that do need to be spoken to because of biblical commands. We should speak out, listen, regarding social, economic, political realities that counter the narrative of the gospel, the narrative of God's work, the narrative of the fact that Jesus came and died to redeem all people, to rescue all people, to to save and revalue all people. So there are things we should call out. Racism is a sin, period. It violates the command to love our neighbor. The Bible commands that we lift up the poor and we defend the rights of the oppressed, where that leaves us. So when we look at, listen, and this is gonna, some of you are not gonna like this, you can, whatever. What is happening to children at our southern border is wrong right now. It is wrong. The most conservative evangelical association, the National Association of Evangelicals, has come out against the treatment of the children. It is sinful, and we should, as Christ followers, engage. A good friend of mine shared with me this week that she went and visited the border, and she watched families who have been separated holding fingers between the wall that's being built, holding a worship service together. That's not right. That's wrong. We should speak out against those things. Overarching poverty is never going to be the way of God's kingdom. I believe abortion is wrong. We need to name these things. Some of us respond to some of those. Some of you are hearing some that you like, and you're like, yeah, that's wrong. The other one, you're going, I don't know. But you've got to measure that against the Bible, not just what your pastor said. Don't label us as a church. Don't say, well, Justin said this. Go study the scripture because you too, Paul says, have the spirit of Christ. You discern that. See, some of us respond to some of those, but not all of those. I want to say we need a pro-life ethic, but we need a pro-life ethic that stretches from pre-birth all the way to the grave. We need a pro-life ethic across the board. See, here's the tension in all this, though, and this is what maybe some of you need to hear to feel a little better about today. We can call these things out as wrong. They are also very complex, and we have to recognize we may, con- dis- we may continue to disagree on how we practically help the poor, how we resolve immigration, how we care for women in need. The people who are supporting gun rights are not for children being murdered in school. And it's ridiculous that we're painting that, pro- that, that stroke. We've got to understand, people of Christ, that we are to lead the way in our culture, not react to culture. Have I a Efficiently stepped on everyone's toes here today. Here's the, the last don't, and then I've got one do. Don't get caught up in all or nothing thinking. There's a British ethicist, James Mumford, and he said, we live in a political world that has this package deal ethics. 
And so political parties increasingly are insisting, news media is increasingly insisting that you can't work on one issue with them if you don't embrace all of their approved positions. You got to take the whole package. And what I want to say is don't get caught up in that. See, you got to, we say this all the time, your cable news station of your choice wants your ratings. That's it. Your political party wants your votes and your money. Fight against these easy labels. It's so easy for us today. It takes a click of a mouse to make enemies of the other side. That's all it takes. And in reality, like I said, no one who opposes gun control wants to put the lives of children at risk in school. I got ahead of myself there. But they do believe there's a different way to keep kids safe. And likewise, those who want universal health care don't want the government to control every part of their life. That's not what they're asking for. But they do want everyone to get the medicine they need. We have to have room to see the complexity of these things. Here's the final point, the command you can throw out if you don't like it today. Do start to find the third way. What I mean by that is this. So often today, we have two options, right? We have this idea of let's withdraw and just not be political, or let's assimilate fully with one party or the other. Those, those have kind of been the options. The third way, friends, is the Good Samaritan. The third way is the Good Samaritan. It's the one who steps outside of his own views, of his own safety, of the, of the cultural's expectations, and even the threatening consequences, because that man who was half dead could have been faking and killed him. But he steps outside of that for the sake of loving the neighbor well. Force yourself to know people and not just issues. If you're standing against an issue but you don't know a person, go meet a person before you stand against an issue. Tim Keller, again, there's a great article he wrote. You can look it up. Just write Tim Keller, Faith and Politics, and you'll find, I think it was a New York Times or Washington Post article, but it's a brilliant article. He said this, the gospel gives us the resources to love people who reject both our beliefs and us personally. There is no other source in this world that gives you resources to love people that hate you. That's, that's Christianity exclusive. That's what we're taught. Christ rescued us not by imposing his power on us, but by coming to earth, losing his glory and power, serving and dying on a cross. That's how Christ put his mission into the world. So I'm going to have the band come, and I want to share with you as we close this a little bit of a longer quote, but it's a quote from a rally that took place. I'm not going to tell you what political rally it was, because you'll stop listening. I will say, I think this is one of the most brilliant speeches I've heard that defines what we need to know about humanity. Here's what the speaker said. We hear every day about how fragile our country is, on the brink of catastrophe, torn by polarizing hate, and how it's a shame that we can't work together to get things done. The truth is, we do. He says, we do work together to get things done every day. The only place we don't is here, and he was in Washington, (laughs) D.C., or on cable TV. But most Americans, here's what he said, most Americans don't live in D.C. or on cable TV. Where we live are values and principles from the foundation that sustains us while we get things done, not the barriers that prevent us from getting things done. Most Americans don't live their lives solely as Democrats, Republicans, liberals, or conservatives. Americans live their lives more as people, and I love this, that are just a little bit late for something they have to do. Often something they don't want to do, but they do it. Impossible things every day that are only made possible through the little reasonable compromises 
we all make. And he started to show this video. You can play a little bit if you want. He showed a video of cars starting to merge in this tunnel, right? This, this huge tunnel. And he looked at the video. He said, this is where we are. This is who we are, these cars. He said, that's a school teacher who probably thinks their taxes are too high. Amen? Amen. <laughs> They're going to work. He said, there's another car, a woman with two small kids. Can't really think about anything else except the kids right now. A lady's in the NRA. She loves Oprah. There's another car, an investment banker. Gay, also likes Oprah. Another car's a Latino carpenter. Another car, a fundamentalist vacuum salesman. Atheist, obstetrician, Mormon, Jay-Z fan love this list. But this is us. Every one of the cars that you see is filled with individuals of strong belief and principles they hold dear, often principles and beliefs in direct opposition to their fellow travelers. And yet, these millions of cars must somehow find a way to squeeze one by one into a mile-long, 30-foot-wide tunnel carved underneath a mighty river. And they do it concession by concession. You go, then I'll go. You go, then I'll go. You go, then I'll go. You, I'll go. Oh my God, is that an NRA sticker on your car? Is that an Obama sticker on your car? It's okay. You go, then I'll go. He said, that's what we do. The man in this story of the gospel wants to know who is my neighbor. And Jesus says, who's going to be the neighbor? Who's going to step up and be the neighbor? I love our country, and I am so grateful. We have soldiers in the room right now. Where, where are you? David, I see you. Anybody else? Paul. I am so grateful, and I don't want anyone ever to hear me speaking down to the freedom that we have in this country that was, friends, inspired by the kingdom of God, that was inspired by the kingdom of God. And so as we navigate this culture that wants to label us, wants to segment us, wants to divide us, wants us to be mad all the time just so we'll keep watching their station. I want us to find the third way that says we serve a Savior who is mighty to save. Amen? He is above all of this junk. And so the way you reason out these biblical issues of justice and wisdom, we're going to disagree, and that's okay. I'm fine with that. What I'm saying is let's not ever become the misrepresentation of Christ because we're so caught up in an opinion. Let's always represent Christ first. Let's stand together and pray and we'll sing a song and maybe we'll all feel better for where I've offended you today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father.